Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The kind of mantra that I use now is the obstacle is the path. And like things are, things are difficult. Life is difficult. The hard times are more the norm than the rule. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and this episode with Eric Larson. Eric is best known as a polar explorer and adventurer. He's one of the most accomplished polar travelers and guides in the world and is known for his bold journeys into the coldest parts of the planet. In this episode, we explore Eric's access to the outdoors and the world of ice and snow. From an early introduction to nature as a cyclist to accidentally becoming a dog sled driver before eventually turning to skis and polar travel. We also talk about Eric's cancer diagnosis the impact that that had on his life, career, family and mental health, and the way it changed his perspective and mentality. It's an honest, raw and blunt conversation that was a joy to be a part of. Before we begin, I'd like to mention that we're on Patreon. So if you're a regular listener to the podcast and would like to access extra content, including InVision interviews and monthly sit-downs with me and a guest, then you can find us on Patreon at The Adventure Podcast. I'd also like to talk to you about Sidetrack Magazine, our sister publication, Sidetracked is an incredible quarterly journal that celebrates authentic stories of adventure and exploration. You can find out more at sidetracked.com. I'd also like to take a quick moment to push you in the direction of our charitable partner, the Martin Moran Foundation. They're a wonderful organisation working to get young people from disadvantaged backgrounds into the outdoors. You can find information about how you can support them on our Instagram bio at The Adventure Podcast. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, then please do subscribe on iTunes and leave us an honest review. They're a big help, and it really does help us bring the podcast to a wider audience. Okay, over to Eric Larson. Let's start at the start. Please, could you introduce yourself? Tell me who you are and what you do, whatever that means to you. Sure. My name is Eric Larson. I'm a polar adventurer, expedition guide, wannabe professional camper, and a dad. And where does all this start for you? How do you become one of those? I think for me, I don't really have this like very distinctive founder story like you know, I, I was in the library and fell and my hand hit this book and I opened it up and it was a treasure map or whatever. Um, you know, realistically, I grew up dreaming about camping, reading about, you know, historical expeditions from the age of exploration and the Klondike uh, time in Alaska, the gold rush. And was really just fascinated by those stories and enjoyed being outside on my own 
in whatever way I could. And so it's just kind of been a slow burn for me of doing things, gaining skills, following my interests and my passions rather than the dollar signs. Um, And that's pretty much driven me my whole career. I always had a dream of doing expeditions, but I never polar expeditions or mountaineering expeditions, but I never knew the path. And so I just just started doing things. But uh, honestly, it's more that I love being outside. I love camping and, and just trying to find a way to be able to do that as much as possible. So when you say you just started doing things, what did you start doing? What were those early, early moves? I grew up in the Midwest of the United States, Wisconsin, which is not really the most adventure friendly state, so to speak. And also, you know, a long time ago when there just, there weren't a lot of other connections to other people or other information. And the world was pretty small. The world was your backyard and the world was your town. Um, But I was always pretty curious about what was out there and just wanting to be out on my own. And I think for me, it was a couple of things. One was a bike and just, you know, I got a paper out. I saved up a bunch of money. I bought my first bike when I was 12, um, road bike, and then I was gone and I would just get a map and I would ride my bike for, you know, 60, 70, 100 kilometers, 120 kilometers just out on my own. I had a friend that was interested in bicycling too. And so we would go out on a Sunday as, you know, 13 or 14 year olds and, and ride you know, almost 150 kilometers and not think twice about it. We'd be gone all day and get lost and turn around. And that was me really discovering the world around me in a big way, as well as getting lost and, and, um, you know, needing food and all this other kind of stuff. And then I also just tried to do random adventures. I remember being in high school and, and, um, having a canoe and just talking my buddy and to canoeing down the little river in our town and like portaging through downtown through the section that we couldn't travel and, you know, walking down main street with a canoe on our shoulders and having people honk at us just to kind of do fun things and, and be out and, and see places. And, and it's kind of that idea that's really that I just expanded. I did a lot of just adventures like that and started organizing kind of longer, more wilderness trips with my friends. Um, my family did a lot of camping as well. Um, but I was really motivated to be out on my own with my friends, um, just trying to, um, discover the world around me in whatever way I could. And what do you think it was that lit that initial spark? for you of wanting to travel those distances and seek something outside of your town? Yeah, I think I was just curious about like what was over the horizon. Um, I think I may have at some, like some point initially got a lot of positive feedback in my brain from, from that process. I don't know. Um, I like the challenges of, of, you know, being out for that long, the physical challenges, I like the challenges of, 
you know, reading a map and, and trying to find our route and understanding like what the terrain was that we were on versus what it was on the map. And so understanding that correlation and that you could look at a map and then you could plan a route that was interesting or challenging or whatever it was, that was um, a lot of positive feedback. I think just being outside, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I like to be moving. And so that just got me moving more. Um, and like I said, I read a lot of books. And so I just kind of had this idea that uh, of adventure and that there were positive things that would come out of it. And where does the polar stuff factor into this? Did that, was that inspiration early or did it just happen by accident? Um, I, I, you know, again, being from the Midwest, um, in the, in the States, we don't have big mountains. We don't have oceans. We don't, you know, where I grew up was all farm country. So we didn't have these big forests or really large stretches of wilderness of any kind. Um, but we did have a fairly decent winter. Uh, I enjoyed Nordic skiing as a kid, um, and competing in Nordic skiing racing. And, uh, so winter, I was always very comfortable in winter and I enjoyed being out in winter. And it was kind of the realization that I liked winter environment and I liked winter sports. And, um, again, reading a lot of these books, you know, historical accounts of, Shackleton and Scott and Nansen and Franklin and all, you know, all those people, those were polar and Arctic explorers. And so that was a big frame of reference. And I was also really fascinated with, um, as I mentioned before, the, the Alaska and this kind of gold rush time where, uh, and, and like the classics, like call of the wild and, and white fang, you know? And so the, the dog team and going up to Alaska and having to, you know, build a boat and, you know, literally build a boat by sawing trees down and sawing the logs up into planks and, and then hiking, you know, and get into this area and then trying to go sneaker climb. Like those, those stories were fascinating to me and they all revolved around cold environments. And so having this kind of comfort in the cold, really identifying with these stories, um, it was just a natural progression. And I think when I got out of university, I, you know, I immediately got a job in Alaska as a backcountry ranger, which I loved. Um, and, but then after that really kind of sought out, um, an environment where I could live in the cold. Like I moved to Northern Minnesota, um, just to be somewhere where there was a good winter and eventually fell into a job as a dog musher, which I couldn't even believe, um, because here I had read about all these things and I was just working random jobs and, and happened to stop in at a, at a place and, and got this job. And I had never even seen a sled dog before that. And, um, and so that was just kind of like a lot of pieces coming together. And again, it's, it's that slow burn. It's not like one thing happened and then, and then all of a sudden I'm, I'm standing in the North pole. It's 
you know, I did this and that led to this. And, and so for me, I was, again, really following my interests. And that was kind of my process. And, you know, you say you kind of fell into it. How do you end up working as a dog musher? Yeah, I mean, I was, again, just kind of following my interest. I had decided, you know, I, I, I had... Um, you know, after college, I would say I didn't have like a or university. I didn't have a lot of direction, but I knew I wanted to kind of go to some of these places. And I, um, you know, had been doing a bunch of random jobs in, in different geographical regions of the U S and, um, you know, wanted to be in an area, like I said, where there was winter and moved up there and started doing just some odd, like carpentry jobs, um, in the fall and was, basically still looking for a job for the winter. And I stopped in at a lodge that offered dog sled tours for their, um, you know, clients. And I was just looking for any kind of job, um, because I wanted to be in that area. It's, it's an area that's right on the Canadian border. It's huge wilderness. It's part of the boreal forest, Taiga. It's an area that I've always really been interested in and have spent some time, you know, um, in the summer traveling there by canoe and, and some bigger wilderness trips. So I love that area. And I knew that, that it had great winters. And, and, um, so I had stopped into this lodge and looking for a job and they said, we're hiring dog mushers. And I said, I don't know anything about that, but sign me, you know, like, what do I need to do to, to get that job? Because that sounds like the perfect job for me. And, and that was an incredible experience because I realized that there were a lot of opportunities that exist and, um, you kind of have to put yourself in a position to get them and then also be willing to accept the consequences or the risks associated with that opportunities. And so, you know, you're not making any money. There's no stability. You don't have much in the way of like food or whatever. But I had these incredible experiences and got connected to other people where I was able to do more things. And what is it? You know, I don't think we've had a dog musher on the podcast before. And we're like 150 episodes deep. Oh man, you should, you know, like it, I would really recommend there's a few great people I can send to you afterwards, but dog sledding, probably one of the more incredible things for me personally, um, and very insightful, um, and, and informed a lot of my future kind of work as a guide as well by trying to get all these crazy personalities snorting steam and breathing fire down a really narrow windy trail in the middle of nowhere for you know days and sometimes weeks at a time um and to me it was the perfect combination of being out in wilderness areas in winter and this really challenging sport which challenges you both personally physically um, but also mentally you know trying to get this group to work as a team and all these different personalities, um, was challenging. You know, it's a lot like working with, um, you know, 13 year olds because they know what their job is, but they don't want to be told what to do. And they're like people, they have good and bad days. And, um, 
but they embody kind of like all the best things about what it is to be a human. You know, they have such intense passion and drive and their single-minded focus uh, on the task and their joy at the task of like running and pulling. Um, it's just an incredible thing. And um, I thought I was going to be a dog musher for the rest of my life. You know, it was just, it, it was an incredible experience. And I spent about 10 years doing different types of, of dog sled trips, racing expeditions and tours and, um, and loved every minute of it. And, and I know kind of late in, in like the early two thousands, I was training and racing sled dogs. And I remember, um, you know, being on the back of the runners for, 12, 14, 16 hours a day, every day feeding for the feeding and out in the middle of nowhere with no headphones or anything and, and never getting bored. Um, just always finding some kind of challenge. It's a little bit of an emotional roller coaster. So the highs are really high and the lows are really low when the team isn't working and something's going wrong. It can be, um, really challenging. But as I said, I learned a lot about, kind of how to motivate that group of individuals who you can communicate with, but you don't necessarily speak the same language. Um, and so there were just a lot of elements to dog sledding that I really, really enjoyed. And it's, it's funny for me now to not be doing that at all because it was such a, 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 a huge part of my life. And I mean, it was just like eat, sleep and drink dog sledding um, all the time. Um, so. And how does it kind of hold up as a, I I don't know the answer to this as a method of travel in the modern world. Like, is it still used as a outside of the adventurous setting and the tours or has it lost its way with tech, et cetera? I, I mean, I would say like pretty much everything I do is a throwback to a different era. Um, but still, has value in the modern world. And so it exists today as, um, a sport, you know, in terms of racing, there's still some people that are doing dog sled expeditions. There are definitely, you know, a lot of tour and outfitters that are operating to be able to give these people experiences. And there are also people that are living, you know, that like, um, you know, first nations Inuit in, in Arctic Canada and Greenland that are still traveling by dog team and, and hunting by dog team, um, you know, as part of their culture and life. So it's, it kind of spans the whole gamut in terms of, of how people are using those animals, um, now, you know, whether it's a hobby or a way to get dinner on the table and everything in between. And you said a little while ago that you, um, when you were in it, you thought you might do it forever. Um, what changed? I got jealous of the dogs, um, quite honestly. Like they were doing all the work and I at times was just standing there. And I thought I would like to be doing some of that hard work as well. And, and you know, in a big, long race, it's hard. You know, you're going for multiple days, you're running for six hours and then you're resting for like six hours. But in that time as the musher, you're maybe getting about two hours of sleep. So you're getting maybe two hours of sleep every 12 hours, um, with some longer rests intermittent, depending on how the race is. But, um, so it's difficult, but you're not at that 
physical limit like what that sled dog is or like when I was a, I was a bike racer in in high school and university and and I've done some longer bike tours and so it's it's not that same or just kind of the longer more human powered um, adventures that I had done uh, at least at the time and so I really wanted to kind of be in that mode and also you know I kind of we were I was starting to plan my first North Pole expedition as a dog sled expedition as a result but um, you know, my other part of my background is really focused on the environment and environmental education. And we wanted to do an expedition. And this was again in the early 2000s, focused on climate change and the Arctic. And we felt that, you know, the dog sled wasn't necessarily the best tool to be able to talk about um, climate change. And so um, kind of in a unique moment of insight, my expedition partner said, hey, let's go to the North Pole in the summer, but we'll use these canoe sleds instead, or we'll make these sleds out of, out of kayaks or canoes, and, and that would be a more pro- profound image. And it turns out it was, and a, and a more unique trip, you know. And so that kind of shift fit my kind of personal desires at that time and, and kind of opened the door to some bigger challenges as well. And when was that? And, you know, tell me about the trip. Well, we, that was back in the, it's so funny to think because um, I talk about this a lot because the world has changed and, um, and it's still the same, but the technological and informational side of adventure in the early, in, in extreme remote adventure in the early 2000s was pretty analog still. Um, there wasn't a lot of information there wasn't social media at all. The internet existed, so it was a it was a tool. You know, it wasn't like we were using um, you know vacuum tubes and whatever else abacuses to figure out everything. Um, but there just wasn't a lot of information, and 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 at that time, and and still to today, the goal of a lot of my trips are to be unique and to do things that haven't been done and. You know, it's not necessarily about the geographical first of being the first person, but it's like, how can we do these traditional adventures in, in unique ways or more challenging ways to, to push our personal limits? And that's where this kind of idea of the summer North Pole expedition came about. And that was really in 2002 that we started planning that. And so we spent three years fundraising, you know, testing out kayaks training, finding the right gear. Cause if we couldn't call anybody, be like, Hey, what boots did you wear on your summer trip? Nobody had done it before. So we didn't know what the conditions were. We didn't have, you know, satellite data wasn't necessarily complete. You know, there was some general stuff, you know, what would the ice be like when we were out there? No one knew because no one had really spent any extensive amount of time on the sea ice in that time of year at that time. And so there was just a lot of planning and, and, you know, the, the kind of bummer part of polar travel is that the logistics are prohibitively expensive and, you know, I'm not a millionaire. I had been working seasonally previously. Um, so I was just getting by. And so we had to do a lot of fundraising, kind of writing grants and, and getting on sponsors 
which I had been kind of quasi involved with at the time prior to that through some of my dog sled expeditions, but not in the same way. And, um, and so it just was a long process. And you kind of, when you kind of have this big unknown that you're trying to do, you just try to go through and cross off all the things that you can figure out or hope might be true. And, and, and ultimately we felt like we were ready in 2005 and, and flew over to Russia and left from, a place called Cape Artichesky in, in kind of northern, northern Siberia and basically failed right away and um, came back with our tail between our legs and then regrouped, um, kind of had some philosophical discussions about if we should continue or not. But then in 2006, left from Canada um, and then completed that journey. Why did you fail initially? Um, there's a couple reasons, you know, I've, it's, it's interesting. There's a lot that goes into an adventure and especially an adventure with a big unknown. And at a certain point you don't have the time or the resources to be able to have everything understood. And so there was, there was still some uncertainty and the conditions, I think at the time we were trying to cross the whole ocean unsupported, which means bringing all of our supplies. So our sleds were, man, I want to say they were, I can't even remember now, but 175 kilos each, something like that. I can't remember. Um, and we, you're just very slow. And I think ultimately though, and we had some encounters with polar bears that were pretty crazy. But I think ultimately, though, we ended up kind of getting in this area where the current's kind of swirling around and, and pushing us backwards. So Cape Artichesky is a, a peninsula. And so we're here, you know, we're starting here, but we're getting pushed, you know, farther south where than where we started. And, you know, it, I was young. I was kind of the second in charge of two people. And I think ultimately with polar expeditions, you have to have the long game and it's a mindset and it's very easy to get overwhelmed at the scale and scope of what you're doing and um, to give up. And I would say, as I've studied expeditions, you know, a lot of trips give up within that first week period because it is so overwhelming. Your progress is minuscule or negative and ultimately, um, you just have to put in your time and it's just kind of like putting your time. Even if you're making two kilometers a day, you know, you're doing it and eventually the strategy will pay off, but you kind of have to burn the ships a little bit and, and, and throw everything in there because every piece of data that you're getting is telling you otherwise. And so what was it that meant you were then successful? Was it mindset? Um, I think it was mindset. I think it was just persistence. Yeah, it was a little different strategy. And I, you know, I, I also, you know, the idea of failure to me is always a funny term. Like we measure it in terms of like you didn't necessarily reach your specific goal, which I get, you know, that's the definition of failure. But you know, I look at all these things as a continuum and each time you're out, you're learning something new that you apply to the next situation. 
And, you know, when you are doing something, you kind of have to fail. Like that's part of the process of being successful. Um, and so this idea of failure, like I, I'm, I, I love it, but I also, you know, I just also feel that that's just part of the entire journey. It's not like you reach this point, you end, and then that's it and nothing happens you're always gaining some sort of critical piece and then you're, you know, your track changes slightly or you're like, okay, yeah. Or you get unlucky, you know, like again, when you're in some of these environments, there's so many variables that you can't control. And when you're doing difficult trips, especially, especially now with like, if you're looking at speed records or FKT's fastest known times on some of these really thin routes, everything has to align perfectly. Um, to be able to, to get that. And so you can have all your stuff dialed hundred percent, but then you have some sort of unusual conditions that are just, um, not necessarily unforeseeable, but that are insurmountable at the moment. And for us in, in, in 2006, it was, you know, remodifying our, our canoe sleds a little bit, getting a resupply, realizing like our, our bigger priority was to achieve the objective and then rather than kind of the aesthetic of the trip. Um, and, and, and so those were some, pre- and also leaving from Canada where we had a different um, currents and, and kind of ice configuration. Yeah. I just think it's some fascinating mindset conversation around failure. I think, you know, it's, this isn't a self-help podcast, but yeah. I think it bridges, it, it requires the perfect balance of like ego in one hand and imposter syndrome in another and just finding that tightrope between them of, you know, I failed, that's okay because I'm on a journey and this is a learning process. That doesn't mean I'm a failure. It doesn't mean I'm useless. But yeah. also that, that kills some people's dreams and hopes, but the other end, ego doesn't let people, you know, oh, I failed that means I'm going to do something else because I need to prove to myself and others that I'm good. Yeah. I mean, I've been, I've been through that whole, you're absolutely right. And I've been in that mindset and my commentary right now comes after 25 years, you know, and, and having my ego come down quite a bit, um, through a variety of experiences and a variety of failures. And, you know, that first, thing in 2005 I came back we had all the support from family and friends we were you know all global media attention sponsors fundraising that just went poof and so that was a hard that was hard for me and it it was exactly that like I wanted to go out and do something else I was you know I felt like we had let so many people down um and yeah it's tough it's all those things are hard. And, but now I understand the value of that. And so all these difficult moments, and this kind of goes, um, with one of my phrases that I've been using a little more recently, which isn't anything that I've invented. Well, first of all, there's, there's another good quote and it's like Thomas Edison. He's like, I didn't fail. I just found like 2000 ways that didn't work, you know? And, and so that's kind of talks to that continuum, but ultimately, you know, the, the kind of mantra that I use now is the obstacle is the path. And like, things are, things are difficult. Life is difficult. The hard times are more the norm than the rule. 
And the good times are the exception. And that's not a negative worldview. It's more just understanding that things require effort, that, um, you know, life and the things that we're doing as humans are challenging and they can be overcome um, at times, but not all the time. And, you know, when the good times are around, great, but also realize that that's going to, it's going to pass, you know, this too shall pass so that, that, you know, something else will come down the pipe at, at some point. So, you know, I spent a lot of time by myself and trying to figure out, um, how to make myself move forward when I consider myself the weakest link in everything I do. And so a lot of these conversations and ideas are thoughts that I wrestle with, you know, every day and very much every day on expeditions when you don't have a lot of um, other filters distracting you. All you have is you and your mind and, and, you know, a thousand kilometers of white nothingness to reflect on all of it. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I mean, I think you might have just begun to answer my next question, which is, you know, why polar travel? And specifically, you know, those long, I don't, I don't like the term wastelands, but those, those barren, stark, you know, Arctic yeah. style lands what is it that moves you there rather than jungles or deserts or yeah i call them long boring freezing cold suffer fests um i've always been drawn to the process you know i do some mountaineering and i like the mountains i like photography so i like taking pictures of mountains um but i love the process I love the physical and mental challenges of expedition style travel. Um, I love the kind of chess game that you have to play. And so, you know, for example, a base jumper, they hike up to, um, you know, a mountaintop and they stand on the edge. And in that split second, they make that decision and that impacts all the things that they're going to do. Um, and for me, what I have to do is I have to get a situation where that process takes me, you know, five, six, seven weeks that I have to make every decision correctly in that time frame, so that when I get to that moment of the cliff and the jump, you know, metaphorically, I have everything prepared. And so I enjoy the discipline of that. Um, I enjoy kind of the preparation and plan that goes into being able to do that. I enjoy also the time of being out for that long, because when you're out for not just a day or a week, but weeks and months, you begin to understand that place in a very unique way. And especially when you're traveling human powered, 
you're in that environment, you're part of it, you're connected to it. And so you start to understand um, these subtleties that exist and what, what is happening with, with, with inside you, both physically and, and philosophically. And, you know, there's kind of that back and forth that happens and it's, and it's a challenge, um, in, in all those ways. And so I'm really drawn to that, that whole process. And, and the, the destination is more of an arbitrary point that's just allows you to get out and do that. Yeah, I was going to ask that. I mean, it's a super obvious question, but how much of it is about the flag waving at the pole? And none of it. It's it's pointless, especially at the North Pole. I mean, there's nothing there. So, and the ice is moving. Um, and so at one point, it's just, I, I kind of call it staying in the freezer and tearing up money um, because it's just so arbitrary and pointless, but it's also very meaningful and significant at the same time. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I, I wonder uh, how willing you are to talk about it, but, you know, your views on polar travel in the modern time, you know, particularly the past few years with some of the controversies and the last degrees and just the way that polar travel is going. I think there's a massive yeah. difference between the North and the South and you're yeah. an expert and I'm not, but where are we going and are we going in the right direction? Um, I mean, all of adventure is changing. That's a good question and one that I haven't really talked about, although I think about it, I maybe talk about it with some of my peers more. Um, you know, the world is changing in, in every aspect and much of this adventure is now becoming tourism, um, which is great. You know, I do a lot of guiding. The problem with that aspect is that it's, portrayed in the media as true exploration. Um, and so we have this kind of split, uh, of what it is. And I can go on and on for that, but I don't want to, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole unless you really want to, um, that be, and, and so what I think is there is value in those experiences for those people. Um, because any kind of, in any kind of outdoor experience has value, my kind of comment for people is to, you know, tell the story of themselves in that place, how it unfolds versus how they want to be seen. But that's a whole kind of symptom of social media in general as well. But ultimately, I come down to the thing, a couple of things. One, I feel a little bit like a dinosaur um, for a couple of reasons, because this style of travel is, is so antiquated. I mean, there isn't much difference between me and Shackleton and what we were doing, um, you know, not necessarily our personalities or whatever, but you know, the style in which we were traveling, it's pretty much the same. We've got some modern materials. We've obviously got better communication and navigational abilities, but for the most part, they were skiing and pulling a sled across the surface, trying to be as light as possible, eating meals by melting snow every night, you know? Um, so not much has changed. And then there's also this idea, you know, when, when I look at like the climate and the environmental aspects, you know, there hasn't been a full North Pole expedition from land since 2014. And so imagine if somebody just came and bulldozed Everest and nobody was able to climb that anymore. And so this kind of sport culture identity that I've been involved with my whole kind of life and this 
you know, even stretching back for so long, you know, that's provided me with a very fulfilling life to be part of that community. Um, and that sport, um, as it existed for a long time. And, and, and back in the day, of course, it wasn't a sport. It was just, Hey, what, what's in the world, what we're exploring, we need to figure out what's here. And so to have those things not be available, um, you know, due to, due to the environment changing dramatically, um, is sad. And when I think about my kids, um, I don't necessarily expect them to do any sort of big expedition. They can do whatever they want, but you know, there's a lot of knowledge that is pretty hard won that is, is going to end with me, um, because nobody's doing that trip. And that's a little sad, but I think more importantly, any of this kind of bigger wilderness travel, this adventure, and it can exist on any level, but I think dealing with this uncertainty and going in the unknown and challenge yourself, there are a lot of important lessons that I've learned. Um, and so my mission now would be how do I convey some of those ideas and ideals from this type of travel or adventure that are important to modern times? And so if you think about, um, you know, what we're talking about failure and adversity, if you think about, you know, being self-sufficient, you know, we're North Pole Expedition South Pole Expedition, you're like almost two months on the ice. And if you're traveling unsupported, every, you're carrying everything that you live for two months. And, you know, you're hungry at times, you're cold, but that's it. That's all you have. And and so that idea of being self-contained, I think, you know, those aspects are really important to our modern world. Working to solve difficult problems as an individual or a team, that's really important in our modern world. Understanding our planet, that's important. Um, you know, being able to communicate. Uh, you know, there's so many aspects and facets of, you know, expeditions specifically that I feel like um, translate into things that I do every day. I mean, I'm giving myself my pep talk. My wife hates it because I'm like, oh, that's just like on an expedition and blah, blah, blah. She's like, yeah, okay, whatever. And I'm like, no, but it's true. So that's where I tend to focus on. I mean, I could, I could, you know, go on and on about like the change and, and how we're not being true, but everything changes. And, and I don't think there's any value in being like an old exclusive curmudgeon. Um, and so it's more about like, one, finding these ideas and trying to connect them with, with people now. And I think the other thing is, how do we lift other people up? You know, how do we bring other people into the fold to experience these things so that they can, you know, gain these insights on their own? Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I think, you know, the part of the reason I ask it, and just to get some of my own opinion out for a second, is just, I'm so protective of the authenticity of the experience. And I think when we hear that, you know, someone else has conquered Everest, I'm kind of like, well, firstly, did you conquer it or yeah. did you manage to summit it? You know, yeah. it kind of let you pass if you want to be spiritual. But also, were you guided up the fixed ropes? Because there is nothing wrong with that. If you totally. want to climb Everest with a guide and yeah. get to summit, feel free. Totally. It's a complicated conversation. That's a different day. But it's very different to climbing a new route on Everest, which will get done again at some point in the near future. Yeah. 
same with Antarctic travel. Like there are lots of, you know, there are firsts left undone. Totally. Skiing the last degree is not conquering the South Pole, but feel free to go and do it. Totally. Yeah, I, I would agree. And like I said, like I, I'm, I'm in that because I, I guide a lot of those trips too. And so I, I'm kind of one foot in and one foot out, but I have the same ethos and, and philosophy. Everybody should have the opportunity to be able to do those adventures. Obviously, it's become, you know, a playground for people who can afford those types of things. Um, but it's more tourism. And the hard part is, is we, again, we have this old way of explaining these things. Like we've always called people who do trips to the North Pole explorers because that's what they were traditionally doing. You know, you don't call a mountain, you know, someone climbing Mount Everest an explorer, you call them a mountaineer. So there's a different term there. And so we're using these old terms to describe these modern things. And it's just, it's, you know, when, like you said, when you have somebody making all the decisions for you, it's a much different experience. And, um, and people don't realize that it's still challenging to them, but there, there are so many different levels of challenge. And I I don't think anybody expects someone to go out and, and do these things right away. But what's missing is, which is fine. But what's missing, in my opinion, is some of that hard-won knowledge from the process of gaining more knowledge. And so um, what you don't get is that perspective of what more time out there gives you. And and when I started getting into mountaineering, I mean, honestly, I was never really that interested in climbing Mount Everest. I just thought of it as a good way to get people interested in the other things that I wanted to do because everybody's so focused on Everest. And, and I, I was like, well, what that's, you know, I don't want to be there with a million people. And luckily my schedule worked out that I was there in the fall where there was, you know, ended up being nobody else in the mountain. It wasn't like I intended that, but I was psyched that it happened, um, that way. But, um, you know, again, there's this process that you go through to learn more knowledge. And, and, and I started, kind of get moving, getting in more mountains. And right away, I remember being in an area where there was some rock fall and I was with a guide and the guide's like, watch out, you know, and I was listening to this whizzing sound. I didn't know what it was. And of course it was rocks coming down. And, and I had this little bit of insight. I was like, oh yeah, that's the knowledge that I don't have. And so I had done enough expeditions at that point to realize like, I didn't know everything and to get more knowledge I needed to be out in that environment I needed to make you know just spend more time climbing and doing things and I needed to make mistakes and you know come up short on attempts and blah 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 and so that's what I did I took many years and just started on this process on my own and with some people some of my friends to gain that knowledge and so um it's different and you know I think in my quiet moments I lament that a little bit because I do think when we, when we talk about this process and when we talk about, you know, the lessons learned from getting that experience, um, I see that as a positive impact and, 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 you know, paying for it, you don't necessarily get that same thing. Um, but there are other benefits to being out there. You just, um, you know, at, at one point I feel a little bit like, you know, Don Quixote, charging it at, at um, 
windmills, you know, on this kind of ideologic mission about how we talk about adventure and the, and the actual language and words that we use. Um, but I, I, you know, it's a losing battle. And so what I try to do is steer the conversations, I think, in ways in which are going to be, um, uh, responsive. Um, but I, but, but, and not to ramble on too much, but in my moments, as someone who I felt used to be kind of on the cutting edge and kind of pushing things and pushing kind of the norm, I now look back at that time with more nostalgia than anything, you know? So I don't, I don't want to be the guy that's like, well, back in my day, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. You know, you guys have it easy, but I kind of am. But it's just interesting as well. I mean, it gets kind of armchair philosophy, but for me, so much of what I'm impressed by comes down to intention. I just, you know, I'm not, I really need to make it clear that like, I'm not saying people who climb Everest don't impress me or I don't think they should be there, et cetera. That's not what I'm saying. But for me, it's, do you just want the selfie at the top? Or do you really want to climb that mountain? Because those two things are really different. Totally. I mean, I, I know lots of people who, and you will as well, who, you know, I know guys who go on unique expeditions every year and no one knows who they are. Oh, and right. I think that people could get, and this is just my opinion, and we're all different, <laughs> but people could get more out of a completely self-supported five-day bike packing trip through Scotland yeah. than they could being guided up Everest. You know, in totally. different places. You're going to know more about adventure because you're going to have to navigate, you're going to have to pack your gear, you're going to have to deal with bad weather. You have yeah. to make decisions about getting up. You have to wake yourself up. The, you know, the list goes on and on. So I agree um, wholeheartedly. And so it's, it's, again, trying to find ways to emphasize those aspects of adventure versus the parts where we're just kind of sucked into this selfie what's got two thumbs and is totally awesome kind of adventure and it's funny because um you know for me personally there was covid and i got sick for a while and so i'm getting back in it and i and i and i look at some of my older trips and they just i I don't look at them in the same light anymore like i know i was hearing to all that ideology and kind of those parameters but it was very ego driven um, and and also kind of in line with my mission. But I'm not sure if if I have that same mentality about it either. So it's, it's, cha- it's changing and evolving for me as well. And so when I kind of look at my schedule upcoming and planning some of my own trips, I kind of look at like, oh, I got some great friends that I would love to do a great trip with. But I'm also like, well, what are some people that I could actually help bring up with me and, um, you know, invite them along so that they could get more experience than hopefully do their own thing. And so, you know, those things are changing within me a little bit. You know, I still want to do the most difficult thing possible. Um, I don't know if my time has passed or not. I don't think it has. Um but it's just, it has to be, a lot of things have to line up for that to happen. Yeah, and I don't know how comfortable you are talking about this or not. And if you're not, we can cut it. But, <laughs> um, you know, you said you got sick for a while. Can you tell me what happened to you? And I think what I'm really interested in with the context around it is how, if at all, has that changed you as a person, your mentality, your ambition, 
your focus? Yeah, so um, I was diagnosed with colorectal cancer. Initially, it was, you know, showed like it was stage four. And my doctor said, oh, you've got four years to live. Like people with this condition, pretty much like four years is a generous estimate of your lifespan. Um, And that kind of set off this whole kind of series of events. But ultimately, I had bunch of more crazy tests done and they realized that the cancer hadn't spread to my lungs. But ultimately what it was, was, you know, almost two years and I'm still kind of recovering right now, but almost two years of chemo, really brutal chemotherapy, radiation, surgery, some bad infections, um, just really not being able to do anything and having the world pass me by, um, as well as my life. And at, at that, at that time, you know, when I got diagnosed, I didn't think about going to the North Pole or just standing on the top of Everest, I was just like, how can I get, you know, and you, you, you might be able to relate to this. I was like, how can I get one more day with my kids? And I was just doing the math. I'm like, okay, if I have four years, like what will, how, what, how old will they be when I die? What will they remember of me? And what will those times be? Will I just be this like skeleton sitting in a bed until I fade away into nothing? And I would lay in bed after chemo and I would hear my family downstairs eating dinner and laughing. And I was like, this is what it's like when I'm not, when I won't be here. Um, but I got lucky, you know, and I had a great team of doctors, but it was a, it was a crazy experience. Um, and very insightful into terms of like, you know, everybody's dealing with some sort of issue that might not be, you know, life threatening, but to them, it, it feels like that. And so I, I've had a lot of big takeaways from that experience and it's really informed my worldview a lot. And I don't think as, as difficult as it was and as, as messed up as my body still is to this day. And, you know, I had, you know, 30 centimeters of my colon removed. And, and so my whole body is different now and very challenging. Um, but there's just a lot of takeaways that I, that I got from that experience and that idea of, you know, understanding the stories of everyone else. I think, um, you know, I, I had some really hard moments where other people went out of their way to be compassionate towards me. Um, and that really impacted me a lot. And so I looked at some of my expedition leadership moments and the times where we were the best team was not when we were like, we're the toughest people out here. It was the times where you got to give someone a hug or where you're understanding and relating to somebody else's challenge. Um, and I also kind of, you know, in my old school way, tried to get through that whole ordeal by kind of like white knuckling it on my own. And that just didn't work. And so understanding that I would need to ask for help, um, which just opened a lot of doors and, and communicating about my feelings. Don't tell anyone. Um, but uh, that, that became a really big, important part in being able to share that experience with other people in similar situations, which I wouldn't have guessed. So um, and I'm still kind of trying to figure out the lessons, my fear as I move forward and, and remain mostly healthy is that those lessons will become more distant. Um, and I don't, I'll never forget them because I'm still in it and I'm reminded of 
of that terrible process every day. But <clears throat> I, I don't want to go back to the person that I was previously. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I, I, the shortest version of this possible, but I'm making a film at the minute about three men with spinal cord injuries. Um, the whole film is readdressing masculinity. All of them were big, brave, hard men before their accidents. And one of the three is still working everything out post-accident, but two of them wouldn't press the magic button and get the use of their bodies back because of what the journey and that process has done to them as people and how they think they're better, happier, more well-rounded men. Better for them, better for their partners, better for their families, better humans. And yeah. it, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like you're saying something similar if you don't want to go back to being that person. Yeah, and I wasn't a jerk beforehand. I mean, it wasn't like I was, you know, <laughs> punching people in the face and, and bad-mouthing everyone around me. You know, I, I felt like I was moving through the world with good intentions and politeness, um, either on my own or in expeditions. But it's just such a world shifting experience. And I, and I, what I, you know, I used to think that's one of the things that I was looking for from expeditions. Like my goal with expeditions was to get into a situation where I was going to push myself as hard and as long as I could. And I was going to come to close to death as I could. Um, and I was going to gain all this unique insights into myself and the world and the universe. And, and what I realized is that never really happened. Um, you know, I learned a lot along the way and I grew, but I was still the same person. And so, you know, again, similar to, to, to being sick and having cancer, I actually did get to that edge. Um, I, I wish I wouldn't have, um, and there were a lot of powerful takeaways um, from that as a result. But I'm also still the same person too. Um, but I think, you know, not to kind of speak out of both sides of my mouth, but it was a life-changing moment. But it's also part of that whole process, that journey that helps to find you. And so I look at it now as, you know, some of these things have bigger impacts and some have smaller. Um, but we're all kind of always changing and growing and we're all still kind of the same like dna that started us out on the path too and so um i think my self perception has become a little more understanding of of all those things but the cancer has had a big impact especially um you know because there's a there's a philosophical and physical difference when you choose the situation versus when the situation chooses you and to have absolutely no control. And, you know, even in all these adventure situations, we have control and we have the ego associated around that we're in control. You know, for, if you look at any survival situation or the deaths that occur, nobody's going into that thing thinking that they're going to die. They think I have enough experience or knowledge that I'm going to avoid death I'm going to get very close and that's what I have. And so when death chooses you, that's a much different kind of box that you're operating in. And as a result, the lessons are, I think, much more significant. 
And so if I can ask, what, what do you think were the main takeaways from that whole experience? I mean, I kind of touched on them a little bit, which is this idea of compassion um, and, and what other people are going through. That's a huge one for me now. Um, you know, you can go up to somebody and be like, Hey, how's it going? I'm fine. But you know, like you got to kind of ask the follow-up you got to, um, really, you know, are you like what's going on or yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll just send you. And, and then, so that's, that's a really big one. And then also, you know, people who are sick, which is a lot of people, you know, um, in one way or another, that it doesn't take much as an individual to have a positive impact. You know, I, I know from my own actions when other people had cancer, gotten sick, I was always nervous. I didn't know what to say. And so as a result, you don't say anything. And what I realized is that little bit of effort, however minuscule and arbitrary that it may seem to you, has a big impact. You know, a text, how are you doing? No need to reply, you know, just checking in. Um, so that's a really big one. And so I would say to any of your listeners, if, if anybody knows somebody that's going through something, just send them a text. It doesn't have to be more than that. Don't put it off. Um, I think, uh, again, for me, the idea of asking for help and, and being able to talk about some of the stuff that's very personal and scary, I think was another real eye opening one that documentary sounds you're working on sounds really interesting because, um, like I said, I wouldn't say that I was a jerk, but I, w- I could be a hard person, you know, and focused and, and very goal focused. Um, and I still am in some ways, but I think, you know, having that kind of compassionate perspective and ability to share your feelings, even though it's embarrassing um, or, or whatever um, is important. Uh, as well yeah and it gets into the the film stuff but i think it's actually increasingly and i'm just working all this out you know I've yeah been hours of interview, I've been through my own stuff that's changed me in this way but i think it's actually the true sign of a strong man is the ability to be vulnerable yeah yeah and that's not how i was brought up at all and that's not how a lot of guys are brought up and it's definitely a conversation that's happening more and more and if you look at like mental health and, and, and those kind of issues as well. But I think, yeah, on a, on a, on a personal level, I think it's helped me out a lot. Um, and being able to share some of those feelings and, and not necessarily be the expedition guy, totally, <laughs> you know, even though a lot of that expedition mentality helped me through cancer, you know, a lot of the same philosophies were very useful when I was sick. Yeah, sure. Okay, well, I'm very conscious of time. Um, There's lots more I'd like to ask you, but maybe we'll do it again another day. Um, I always end these podcasts with the same two questions. So if I may, I'll ask them of you now. Um, Sure. The first is what scares you? Uh, Yeah, I would used to say, uh, that's a good question, what scares me? I mean, I'm not, uncertainty doesn't scare me. I mean, I'm a little nervous at heights, honestly, if I were to be a little like nuts and bolts about it. I used to be scared of death and dying. And I think having cancer made me much more comfortable with death. Um, and just understanding that it's a part of life, you know, and, and 
that's just, you know, there's only one direction that we're all going. Um, uh, you know, I want to say maybe being irrelevant, but I think if one, po- one, one part of polar travel, one thing that polar travel teaches you is that you're so incredibly insignificant in the world. Um, yeah, I would say for me, it's probably maybe about my family. Not, you know, the thing that would scare me would be not to not be around for my kids in some way or another. Um, as cheesy as that sounds, you know. No, not cheesy. Um, what brings you hope? I mean, I think human nature is hopeful. I think we're we're designed to be hopeful people. And in one thing, it can sustain us. I think um, I think the ever I think one thing that gives me hope is probably the ever changing nature of adventure, um, which is there are just so many ways to be able to get out and and be outside, um, and I think the more that we can get outside the more that we're connected to nature, the more we understand that we're part of the system and the better we off as a society and, um, you know, the environment. So I would say that's a big thing. And, and I think I do have hope in humanity, you know, as a, as a collective, although sometimes it's hard to see, but I think that, um, I think it's in there and we just need to be reminded of it. Nice. You know? I'll take that. Thank you very much. That was good fun. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for listening. For more information, head to the adventure podcast.co.uk. If you want to get in touch, then you can email me at matt at terraincognita.studio. And finally, as always, please do leave us an honest review on iTunes.